Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my RBP colleague, the exotically named Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. <laughs> Very good, Jasper. We're here without our beloved colleague, Mark Pringle, who Sad is otherwise day. engaged. We sent him our love. It is going to be different without his laugh. Are we going to try and impersonate his laugh? Well, I, don't, I don't think we'll do it any point. justice. <laughs> no, no, we should have sampled it. We should have just, sampled. Maybe I'll just drop it in in the editing process. Just I think like, that's an excellent idea. Uh, um, totally irrelevant junctures as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we will miss his inimitable appraisals of all acts sort of after about 1970, won't we? Yeah. But he'll be back next week. And in the meantime, we are, as ever, going to be talking about what is new on Rocksback Pages this coming week. We're going to start with another very sad rock death, and that is the, the passing of Keith Flint, the manic frontman for The Prodigy, who very tragically took his own life at the beginning of this week. So we have three pieces about The Prodigy that go some way to explaining or chronicling how extraordinary they were in their real kind of heyday, I think. Absolutely. What a sort of staggeringly sort of brilliant front man Keith Flynn Just totally manic, crazy energy that he had. And I think he managed to take the energy from the scene that he'd come from, the sort of three-party scene, and make it somehow... You could feel it on the record, I think. Yeah. And given that he initially was basically just a dancer and yes. then, then he, started... Putting... He was the sort of bears of the hardcore rave scene, wasn't he? And the first of the pieces that we have here by Johnny Cigarette from NME in March 96, when Firestarter has just come out... Yeah, they're just filming the video. In they're the, filming the video, While exactly, the interview is happening. Which is fascinating. And we learn in this piece how Firestarter came about and the story, really, of how both Keith Flint and Leroy Thornhill approached Liam Howlett when he was DJing at The Barn in Braintree. (laughs) 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 So that brings it all very down to earth, doesn't it? The Barn in Braintree. In Uh, Essex. In Essex. Now, to those (laughs) of our listeners who don't know about Essex or The Only Way is Essex, in one of these pieces, I think William Shaw in details calls Essex sort of the most reviled place in Britain. It's kind of the New Jersey of London, isn't it? <laughs> um, and it? But it did spawn this extraordinary band. And the Prodigy really were, I think they were sort of the, you know, their second album was called Music for the Jilted Generation. Yeah. And they represented something that, I mean, it's not the left behind the great deplorables, is it? But there was a sense with the criminal justice bill and all of that, that people were being just treated with extraordinary contempt and, and scorn. And the prodigy sort of spoke up for this very kind of working class definitely. strain in kind of rave culture, would, would you say? Yeah, I think that's definitely fair to say. I mean, not having been around at the time, I can't speak personally to the sentiment, but that's a sense I get partly from these pieces, but also just from reading about that rave scene. Partly, I mean, those free parties were protests against i mean the m11 road extension in Leytonstone, and you know that that whole scene was was politically motivated and engaged and i think there is a sense in which there is protest within the music of the prodigy yes i think i think that's right i mean i so you know i was too old to appreciate the prodigy (laughs) you you were too young too young um but my memory is of uh you know i wasn't 
clued into this whole rave scene in any very meaningful way. But I was aware of the prodigy as, as sort of somehow they were the kind of yobbo manifestation <laughs> of of that scene, and and and, and so they didn't kind of appeal greatly to me. Certainly, the first sure. two arms, Charlie, and so forth, the, the the hits they had in those first days. I mean, I could see their value, but it wasn't music I was going to be listening to or paying not the thing you put on to. on a Wednesday evening as you no, enjoy. You know, it wasn't my preferred Wednesday evening viewing but I funny enough when I moved to America to correspond for Mojo in the sort of mid 90s uh-huh. Rolling Stone asked me to review The Fat of the Land oh, really? which okay. was the third album which to me took their music into a new dimension yeah and was really I mean it was a big sort of breakout success in the States as well, right? I mean, it, absolutely, absolutely. So these pieces are interesting because Firestarter was the first kind of sign of the new prodigy that Liam Howlett was trying to trying to do something a bit more musically complex sure. and sophisticated. And and I received the Fat of the Land in the mail up in Woodstock, New York, <laughs> the bucolic surroundings of Woodstock, and put it on. I was, I was just flattened by this music. I found it sort of intoxicating and nightmarish. And I mean, I'd seen the video of Keith Flint and sort of thought, yeah, this is kind of like the Johnny Rotten for yeah. the sort of rave or post-rave generation. I mean, there's something sort of hideous and thrilling about yeah, this character. threatening, definitely. I hadn't, I didn't know that with Firestarter, Keith had simply, I think Liam had put the track together yeah. as a kind of instrumental, and then had said, this is according to Johnny Cigarettes, we need a different element here. And Keith had said, can we try a kind of vocal? I've got an idea. And this extraordinary lyric for Firestarter came out, and that, that led to the video. And it, I mean, that, that put but what I also, Prodigy in, into popular consciousness. Definitely. But what I also didn't know was that it was actually sort of second attempt at a video where some, they'd got someone That's else. That's correct. They got someone else to try and do a video. They'd seen some ad for jeans yes. that he'd done, and they'd liked yes. that. And they got this director in to try and do a video, but they didn't see themselves represented in the video, so they scrapped it and did this other one, which has become this popular classic music video. I mean, it's one of the great... It really is, isn't it? I mean, it still is absolutely fantastic, I think. And the piece that we're referring to, the enemy piece, he's actually there with them in the London Underground Tunnel, this abandoned underground tunnel, which is almost like a kind of sewer, isn't it? And I think they sort of became more and more like a sort of demonic rock band, didn't they? There's kind of horror elements. It was not a million miles from sort of Marilyn Manson in their kind of imagery and their, their, you know, the clothes they wore. would have devil horns as as hair kind of thing. Yeah, I think, but I think going back to the fat of the land, that's when, as you say, they get more musical. I mean, Liam Howlett, I think, is a classically trained pianist, sort of originally, kind of, but certainly knows his music and he writes stuff that will be melodic and interesting to listen to as yeah. well as that. Yeah, completely. Uh, I mean, I think at least half the fat of the land is pretty great you know yeah. i really do breathe is extraordinary Firestarter is obviously extraordinary the unfortunately titled smack my bitch up is yeah. also extraordinary yeah as um, a, you know. i mean you know they had a long way to go in terms of sort of political correctness oh I yeah think. oh yeah but then they were from essex and they were from um <laughs> i probably get hate mail for that but yeah. he does say... A bit, of, bit Liam, of classism to go with their sexism. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jasper. Uh, Liam does say in this piece, the new stuff I'm writing is heavier, fatter, P-H-A-T-T-E-R. Breakbeat, not as fast as we've been, more hip-hop influenced. Yeah. Plus, there's obvious elements of rock involved. You know, I mean, they were, in a sense, a rock band for the rave age, weren't they? Yeah, and they were also aware of... 
I mean, the fat of the land is a pun on fat pH, what they were trying to do musically, and the land yes. being Essex. You know, they knew and they felt keenly where they were coming from. Yes. And what I liked about that is that they apparently all the, the people that got sent to a listening party that was held mm. in a barn mm. in Essex. Yes. An actual barn with yes. farm animals and a farmer in it. Yes, yes. So all these suits from record labels getting sent yeah. to listen to it in a barn, I think, is quite funny. It's well, quite ironic. Barn, I mean, there's this, there's this lovely detail in William Shaw's details piece, which is timed for just when the Final Land is coming out, August 97. And he goes to Liam's studio in Essex, and it's a converted oak-beamed coach house at the far end of a neat gravel drive with a collection of flashy cars outside. (laughs) And William says, Trey Essex. Yeah. (laughs) And it it doesn't seem likely that that (laughs) such mean, visceral, powerful, angry music comes from that Comes with a gravel drive. Comes with a gravel drive, no. Exactly. It's not included with the purchase of the album. (laughs) But, I mean, you know, to return to the sort of sadder note of losing Keith Flint, it does seem awfully sad that this hyperactive, sort of ADHD, you know, dyslexic... Yeah. ...kind of fuck-up ended his life in such a a sort of clearly a terrible state, suicidal state. I mean, it's hard to believe. It wasn't like he seemed like sort of Nick Drake or something, let's be honest. Um, I think he had his problems, probably. You know, I mean, at the beginning of the the piece by William Shaw, he writes, uh, Keith Flint was always a little crazy. As a child, he used to put on records by Madness or Gary Neiman and throw himself around the room, screaming like a banshee. Once he started, he didn't know how to stop. The only way he could snap out of it was to bang his head against the wall, literally. So I think we kind of get a sense of what little Keith Flint was probably sure. like. And in a sense, he, he was still that kid. Yeah. You know, but he also year, seemed 20 quite, years later. quite kind of happy about his own energy and his own you know he seems to be enjoying himself yes. in in all of that and it is very sad that he ended up in obviously a state where he was not well and really and sad really sad i mean the last of the three pieces is a review sort of 10 years on when the prodigy sort of passed their sell-by date i guess you would bit. say it's a review of the first show on the invaders must die tour so it's december 2008 and Pete Perfides of the Times makes the point. It was hard to imagine how Keith would have carried such a singular look, the look of the Firestarter video, into middle age. And Keith Flint, at this point, is nearly 40. It's the same same sort of conundrum that so many subversive entertainers face. For sure. But he says, having said all that, the fact that he's 39 notwithstanding, he says 12 years after the Mail on Sunday urged the powers to be to ban this sick fire record, i.e. Firestarter, <laughs> Flint still made a convincing folk devil. Which I think sure. it's a great term, yeah. that term, folk, folk devil, devil which I nice. think was originally very... coined by... Norman Cohn, the father of the great rock critic Nick Cohn, folk huh. devils, that okay. idea of, of, of a sort of almost satanic yeah, presence in definitely. the culture. And Keith was pretty scary, he just like Rotten had been, just like Marilyn Manson obviously was to people. But Keith was, to me, so much more authentic than Marilyn Manson. <laughs> yeah, and he does come across as actually quite genuine and self-aware and funny. I mean, there's a certain irony to this for certain, but he pauses in anticipation of a profound thought, then throws us a rather unlikely pearl of wisdom. The best statements these days are the quieter statements. The quieter you are, the more of a statement you're making. Mm. Upon which, without a trace of irony, he adjusts his nose bone and applies more hairspray so that his purple hair horns make their subtle statement as succinctly as possible. (laughs) Which, you know, there's there's a sort of... (laughs) 
I Obviously do like ironic. adjusting of the nose buttons. Yeah. A great loss, a sad loss to the world of popular music. Absolutely. Keith, Keith Flint. The other three pieces on the homepage this week are from very different scene, different eras. The American writer Jeff Tamarkin, who at one time was the editor of uh, Goldmine, and more recently the editor of Jazz Times. Tamarkin actually does live in New Jersey, the Essex of America. <laughs> we have th- three pieces that actually have nothing to do with uh, either Essex or New Jersey, but uh, pertain more to San Francisco. And this is partly or mainly because Jeff wrote a definitive book about Jefferson Airplane called Got a Revolution. It's a very good book about Jefferson Airplane and the whole Haight-Ashbury, San sure. Francisco, late 60s psychedelic scene. And the first of the three pieces by Jeff, in fact, is a relatively long interview with Marty Balin, who's the original co-lead singer with Grace yeah. Slick of the Airplane. And uh, Marty goes back to his early sort of folk days in San Francisco with the, with the, the town criers. And he talks about Skip Spence. He talks about Grace and and so forth. It is a long piece. I mean, I've I've sort of skimmed yes. through it, and it's it's interesting. I mean, for me as someone that doesn't know very much about Jefferson Airplane or that whole scene in general, it is a kind of an interesting retrospective. Exactly. I mean, it's interesting to read those early colourful sort of local details about a scene as important definitely, as, as the hate. The other two pieces are, are kind of San Francisco in later times. A piece about Greg Kinn, who was one of the stars of the Berkeley label Berserkly Records with Jonathan Richmond. So these are all Bay Area themed in a way. Greg Kinn had a couple of hits in the early 80s. And then the last of his pieces, also Bay Area, The Residence, The Great Residence, The Mysterious, Enigmatic, Bizarre, Surreal, residents who were based in San Mateo, south of San Francisco. And this is Jeff witnessing the very first New York show the first the residents ever played. I mean, wow. I find that hard to believe, 1986. I mean, I saw the residents in London earlier than that, and I saw them in L.A. must have been about 82, 83. So I was astonished to read that they didn't play New York, I think it's the Ritz Theatre, until 1986. But then their shows were perhaps not, easily transportable um, since they <laughs> performed in, as many know, in these sort of giant eyeballs. I mean, Jeff makes the point that the residents are the most brilliant sort of subversion, deconstruction of rock cliches. I thought I didn't know who they were, but now you've said the eyeballs, now I recall having seen photographs and having read about them, yeah. I just sort of forgot what Fascinating cult band. I mean, you either sort of worship the residents or you're kind of indifferent to them. They've made... Almost, they made dozens and dozens of albums, many consisting of tracks that don't last more than sort of a minute and a half. Yeah. And I mean, they're very, very out there. For they're sure. very avant. And don't they have a sort of whole a whole persona around it as well? I mean, it's yes, like a sci-fi almost vibe about the whole eyeball thing and the whole outfit and sort of scenes and kind of stuff that they put out. Absolutely. It's a whole world, the world of Ralph Records. I once went to their warehouse in San Mateo and met them all, but no one would ever come out and say that these guys who were in the warehouse were the residents, you know. Yeah. You, you, just, you, you just joined in with that game. Yes. And one was called Homer. And, um, <laughs> you know, you didn't have to say, oh, you guys really the residents, because sort of it was just the, 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 immaterial, the, the worst kept yeah, secret the worst, in rock right. and roll. But anyway, so that's Jeff Tamarkin, and I do recommend his, 
Jeff's airplane book, Got a Revolution. So that's the free stuff that's on RBP. And I'm going to hand over at this point to you, Jasper, to tell us just a little bit about the week's new audio interview for subscribers. Right, so this week we've got a short but very interesting interview with Jane County, who was frontwoman of the band Wayne County and Electric Chairs, the first openly out trans woman in rock, talking in this interview about not really about music so much, but about transitioning and its various stages and about what she's been doing. And so this is 1985, mm. interviewed by Ira Robbins mm. over the phone. She's actually in London. She's actually in London, yeah, yeah, in Streatham Hills. Streatham Hills, yes. Southwest too. Yes. It's, it's a bit like Liam Howlett's gravel-lined studio. It sort of brings it yeah. down to a Streatham Hill. We think of her as sort of in, in terms of Max's Kansas City and, and Berlin, but here we are in Streatham. But So this is 1985, and she's left the scene somewhat and went to Berlin and then got sick of Berlin slash ran away from a lover who jilted her, or in fact, a husband who decided he didn't like her anymore, but now wants her back. It's a very funny interview. She's, she's very funny about all of this. And now she's in London preparing to go do Bible archaeology in somewhere in California or something. And she says it was such a straight face, doesn't she? she I mean, it, it's, it's so clearly genuine, sincere, her interest in biblical archaeology. But for anyone who sort of remembers what Wayne County and the electric chairs were like. I mean, she used to perform these outrageous shows in New York with sort of gigantic sort of dildos and things. Uh, she was she was a genuinely transgressive figure. Very and as you say, so. the, the, the first out transgender performer in Absolutely. pop history, yeah. really. She was one of the classic stories of a sort of small town boy from the middle of nowhere, Georgia, Dallas, yeah. Georgia. I think was the name of the town, Dallas, Georgia, rather than Dallas, Texas. Right. Who, you know, she, she says, doesn't she, I, I, I didn't come out, I was born out. Yeah. Um, and that's how she felt. She felt like she was a girl from very early on. And clearly, in a small town in Georgia, you're going to feel pretty out of place. Pretty out of place, And you're going to get quickly. horribly uh, bullied and abused. So she got on a Greyhound bus in the late 60s and came to New York City, because that was the only place that anyone who felt as out yeah, of place could I, go. Yeah, although what I find interesting is well, that she, she sort of tried to, to make it in Atlanta as, as the person she felt she was, but just got so so beaten down by I mean there were there were laws about how many items of female clothing you could wear you could to balance yes. it out with at least three pieces of male clothing sort of really that's weird. really shocking isn't it Absolutely. that female impersonation was effectively cr- against the law you know, I mean should we be surprised that in mm. the American South in the 60s yeah. that was the case but you know, nonetheless it does still seem shocking yeah. to us and so she was kind of chased out of Atlanta basically and then as you say got on a Greyhound bus went to New York got involved with the whole yeah. Warhol scene and the Stonewall scene the and famous the Stonewall Stonewall pub where gay liberation essentially was born and yes she's very very she's a second generation Warhol crowd so she comes after Jackie Curtis and Holly Woodlawn but but she falls very much into that well very comfortably into that world in fact appeared in the London Roundhouse production of Andy Warhol's Pork uh, when she met they all met David Bowie and was a huge influence on David Bowie at that time. She was, I think Bowie wanted to, I think Bowie did sign her. I think Bowie wanted to produce her. Yes. So, so, so she's an important part of that kind of transgressive New York, London, proto-glam Definitely, scene. Yeah. 
I mean, we're, we're adding this now because it is, in fact, almost exactly 40 years, I think, since she changed her name from Wayne to Jane. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. She talks about... Ira asks her, obviously doesn't really know how to ask, but, but wants to ask when she transitioned and what that was all about and stuff. And she does a good job, I think, of explaining to him, who he obviously doesn't really know that much as you know it is 1985 the common knowledge the public knowledge of that whole life and experience that you have as a trans person is pretty non-existent and she does a pretty good job of clearing up his conceptions of what it actually means to transition and she talks about how it's various stages that she's gone through as her own personal experience perhaps let's just listen to it Um, if I could just ask a, a rude question, what year did you finish the operation and become Jane? Well, you see, it didn't happen in like one stage of one year because of it, it happens in in different stages, different operations. Mm-hmm. I mean, with me, I had an operation one year, and then the next year I had another one. Then one year I had two. Uh-huh. Uh So the whole process took uh, the actual operation. You know, it took from. Um, about, I would say about three years. Mm-hmm. It took me about three years, and I actually started the hormones even before that. I started the hormones in '77, mm-hmm. and then I stopped during the punk days when I was going through this very butch punk stage. <laughs> I stopped taking. <laughs> I stopped taking hormones just to try to make myself look, you know, ugly and worse than ever. <laughs> and then uh, when I got over that, I decided I wanted to look pretty again. I got my nose chopped on, and I had my breasts done, and I had. And it wasn't until until eighty two that I actually had what you would call the basic <laughs> time. Right, I understand. I think that's interesting because obviously we now know that trans identities there's no in fact need for for any of that any hormones any operations or anything but that it's a different thing for each individual who experiences gender dysphoria nevertheless she she talks about the stages she's gone through and actually stopped taking hormones because she wanted to look ugly for being a punk kind of thing well of course her most notorious song is uh, if you don't want to beep me baby beep <laughs> off <laughs> In the absence of Mark, I I I don't think the thing we is I'm going to put that so- his right to use the F word liberally throughout the podcast. I'm probably going to put that song in the podcast. So can you beep out the fuck? <laughs> Oops. Hey. Oops. So, oh, well. so if you don't want to fuck me, baby, baby, fuck off. We're never going to be talking about them in the context of sort of timelessly great music. No, the music but- is. The music is very limited, and it's not really the point. Little known fact that Jules Holland's first ever recording session is playing piano, sort of his typical kind of boogie piano on that that song. I find that so crazy that, of all people, Jules Holland was the first, you know, all I can think of is sort of like, BBC Two, big band stuff that he... That completely, he, completely. I mean, this must have been... I don't know whether he was already in 
squeeze at that point. But there he is, barreling away. On but she's actually, still re- she's actually still recording new tracks. She's just released last year a couple yeah. of new tracks. And nothing particularly remarkable. But, it's, but she does seem to want to keep going and keep doing stuff, which I think is pretty cool. Right? She says at the end of this interview that I read with her that she's going to be around many more years and mm. seems to have embraced it. She says, can you imagine Jane County at 90? Which I think is great because actually also in the interview, Ira Robbins asks her, how old are you now? Yeah. And she's sort of bashful about it. Uh, yes, of course. Old enough to yes. know better, but young enough to not give a shit, is her, is her Somewhere reply. Somewhere between 35 and 40. Yeah. I'll, give, I'll give you a clue. But I, but I like, because she then goes on, she says, as you get older, you look stupid and silly doing rock and roll, is what she says then. She's quite ageist. About yeah, it. but I like that she seems to have got over that and is still just embracing it and going for it. I respect that a lot, I think. it's, it's, it's And living cool. back in Atlanta, Georgia, as yeah. well. So she's kind of made her peace, yeah. seriously, with the South. But she's very sweet, isn't she? She really is. She comes um, across very well. Very sort of delicate and and, and ladylike. And and, yeah, funny too. And funny, very funny. So we'll have another clip. We'll have another clip later. And in the meantime, perhaps we should move on to what's new in the library, which in the absence of Mark, I will be introducing some of the pieces that we have for you. Tonight, Matthew, I will mainly or almost be Mark Pringle. (laughs) Mainly or almost. So the first piece that you will perhaps be able to tell us a little more about is about the Beatles' court battles in the States in the mid-60s that flared up. Well, we've got a lot of early Beatles pieces on Rocksmack Pages, as you know, Jazz, but this is slightly different, slightly more unusual piece about what happened when Capitol Records finally decided to put out Beatles music because they'd been very diffident about the Beatles. They were one of the, they were the sort of quintessential American or LA label associated with, you know, Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra, Peggy Lee, you know. Yeah. And were, they were very, very sort of reactionary and disdainful of, of what people were saying was this kind of British invasion bubbling away across the, across the ocean. They didn't, they didn't want to put out, they didn't exercise their first rights to right. put out the Beatles. And so in, in their absence. In their absence. VJ two, and two, Yeah, black-owned, interestingly, given how influenced by American R&B the Beatles were, two black-owned American independent labels put out the very first Beatles singles in America. One yep. was Swan and one was VJ. VJ yep. is the better known. Swan, very few people talk about Swan Records anymore. And then when Capital finally sort of woke up to this sort of gold mine they Global had in their phenomenon lab, of, it sparked you know, the Beatles, yeah. a, a, a kind of whole series of, of lawsuits between these labels. Well, all three of them trying to, trying to get at each other because they all felt some kind of claim to having either been the first to do it, or obviously, in Capital's case, having the actual true rights to it. It's a sort of, basically, documentary piece, mm. right? I mean, it's just... It yeah, just, it's, it's, a, it's, describes... it's a factual report on what is going on in the, in the, in the courts and, and how the lawsuits are working themselves out. Nice. Um, yeah. An um, interesting one. Yeah. Next up... Jeff Beck in August 1970. Yeah, so this is a piece about kind of Jeff Beck in transition. Many of us would say that Jeff Beck is next to Hendrix, the greatest rock guitarist of all, better than Clapton, better than anybody else. I'm certainly of that mindset. But this is an interesting little piece about a little known uh, episode in the, in the Jeff Beck story where he goes to Motown. He goes to the, the Motown studios in Detroit and plays with the famous 
Motown musicians, although not that famous at that time. No one really knew or talked much about bass player James Jameson, for example. But Mickey Most, Jeff's manager, had this idea it'd be interesting to take Jeff to Detroit and play with them. And it didn't work out too well, and the results were never, were never in fact, released. Well, I mean, I don't think they particularly meshed very well, because Mickey Most says, I mean, Jeff Beck plays very loudly, like guitar players do, and the bass player ran right out of the studio with his finger in his ear going, ooh, 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 we had to go out on the street and drag him back. He didn't want to know. Now, the bass player is unnamed, but probably James Jameson. Well, certainly possibly James yeah. Jameson. There were other bass yeah. players, but let's assume it let's is assume. Jameson. And also, the relationship between us and the Motown musicians was a bit tough, a bit hard. I thought we looked very white, and we'd walk about saying, we just love the music you play. And instead of saying thank you and all that, they'd just say, yeah. Which, I mean, this whole notion that they should be thanking them for it is, I mean, yeah. oh dear. Uh, it's sort of Well, one wonders whether at Motown these musicians felt slightly suspicious of this idea of this yeah. white rock act yes. coming and trying to get some of the Motown magic to rub off on them. Yeah. Do, do you think? I think, that's, I think that's probably... I mean, whether or not, you know, they were suspicious, I think there's no reason why they should be sort of bowing down mm. to anyone in particular. Mm. It's a weirdly sort of self-centred approach to going and saying, we think you're great, you know, like, it's... Yeah. I mean, having said that, I think this is an interesting thing for me to read because... Well, it might be that this was the birth of the sort of 70s Jeff Beck as we knew him. It's the year after Beck Ola, which was, which was a sort of heavier album with Rod Stewart singing. And it's just before the release of Rough and Ready, 1971, which was the first instance of Jeff putting his kind of new band together. And that then led to some pretty extraordinary records in the 70s i think yeah um, so perhaps it was the sort of germination of, of some of that stuff and very funky you know yeah, i mean definitely the, jeff has, has done kind of funk very convincingly in a kind of jazz rock style more than more than many of his kind of white rock peers mm. so it's it just an interesting little yeah, snapshot definitely. of a sort of point along the way for him moving on to Alice Cooper, to Nick Kent in Friends magazine in 1972. Another pretty long piece where Nick Kent is interviewing Alice Cooper and, the, I mean, the band Alice Cooper as well as Alice Cooper himself. Precisely. And it's an interesting piece. It's pretty wide-ranging in its content. And he says it's such a drag that the whole Detroit scene had to get so smacked out because that was the rock and roll city. Yes, and he mentions Iggy Pop, of course, who whose raw power was being recorded in London probably at this very moment. And he mentions Fonhouse, and that must stand as one of the classic rock albums. Iggy was probably the finest performer ever. Generous thing for Alice Cooper to say. Absolutely. I, mean, I remember, so Summer 72, this is just when, this is Nick Kent writing for Friends magazine, just about the time he's about to start writing for NME, but School's Out was a huge single for me and for my pals in that summer if you were at school as a kid at that time that that record of course was sort of massively significant and it's still a great it's still a just fantastic pop record nick calls schools out one of the ballsiest little 45s in ages <laughs> i mean this this was you know alice cooper's big kind of breakthrough moment yeah. he'd been on frank zappa's label a couple of, of albums didn't sell anything and then he hooked up with the producer bob Ezrin, and they started making some pretty great records yeah and, they Killer, started... and then the school's out album and billion dollar babies they're pretty fantastic yeah, records. They're pretty pretty exciting i mean this is at the point where they've already 
coined the shock rock look kind of thing. Sure. And they're really going for that, sort of post... Yeah, guillotining dolls on guillotining stage. Guillotining dolls, throwing chickens into the audience live by mistake. Chickens, I, dead live, chickens, there was a live, live chicken, and it chicken. was an accident. So this chicken got into a feather pillow uh, at a live at this gig, and I don't know what they were going to do with the feather pillow, but whatever. Alice Cooper didn't really know anything about farm animals, having never really seen any of them. He just sort of picked up the chicken and assumed it would fly, so he threw it. Yes. And obviously it didn't fly and got torn to shreds by the crowd. Mm. Yes, it's a pretty unsavoury story, frankly, but it's part of, you know, the, the notorious legend of Alice Cooper, who's sort of aged uh, like fine wine and become a terribly sweet and charming elder statesman. But I mean, it's interesting, you know, picking up from talking about Jane County, that Alice Cooper, the very name, yeah. was a significant statement for kind Absolutely. of 1968, I yeah, think, uh, Vin- Vince renamed himself Alice Cooper. Yeah. And there, so there was, along with all the sort of shock rock stuff that was going on, he really invented sort of shock rock in terms of theatre. There was that kind of element of playing with gender. Yeah, it's a definitely subversive thing. I mean, the GTOs were on the same label with when Zappa, when he went on. Yeah, the straight label. The ironically named straight label, and as it opposed was, to the bizarre label. Then the, the, it was the GTOs that kind of encouraged them as a band to perform in drag and yes. pursue that look. Yes, and I, you know, it was it was. A I mean, I loved it. You see, it's a weird thing because you know. Uh, it was all about glam for me in that era. And Alice sort of fell into that. I mean, I still think of, of Schools Out as a kind of glam rock classic. But at the same time, he didn't look anything like Mark Bowen or David Bowie. I mean, no. he looked much older and he wasn't pretty. No. And the band just looked like jocks in yeah. drag. Yeah. You know, I mean, so they didn't sort of sync very, very naturally with that. But... And I think even people sort of Bowie were quite scornful of Alice Cooper at the time. But I think those records stand up well. I, I, I can't say I love an awful lot that Alice has done in intervening years. I love, there were a handful of amazing singles. I Elected was a fabulous single. For whatever reason, Poison is a single that I... It was on a cassette that I had when I was six. And... A very strange song for a six-year-old to listen to, I think. But uh, <laughs> well, I mean, but I, I love that. I love quite that. Quite a lot of rather strange songs you were listening to yeah, as a kid. Probably all from the same cassette, really. Uh, <laughs> this, no, this one, yeah. this one cassette. But but, but I, I do I do like that sound. I think it's you know it's yeah it's a cool it's a cool. They made well, some good. There's no doubt Bob Ezrin made the Alice Cooper group into something a lot more sophisticated than sure. I think they would otherwise otherwise sure. have been. They were not a great band, I don't think, even compared to like the Stooges. Next up. Next up. Rage Against the Machine, Stephen Wells, NME 1994. And it's again quite a lengthy piece, quite an early piece, talking about them and their rebellion. Stephen Wells writes engagingly and interestingly about what they're doing, but also kind of calls them out, in a sense, for, for being... On a major on, label. On a major on label. Records. Yeah. And, and, you know, criticising corporate consumer culture at the mm. same time. Mm. Stephen Wells sums it up quite well when he says, I'm thinking what a great job it is where you can call your employers corporate whores and still have your job in the morning. Hell, it's probably in his contract. The party of the first part will, at tri-monthly intervals, refer to the party of the second part as scum-sucking puppets of the blood-drenched American junta fascist pig state. <laughs> Classic Swells prose there. I love that. 
Yeah, I, I think it's just great. I mean, this is a, the, the perfect subject, really, for Stephen Wells, because he loves the sort of intense rap rock energy. Yeah. But his politics also kind of broadly align with the radical left agenda of, of rage. Following on from the quote you read out, there's a, there's a nice piece where... <laughs> He's at the side of the stage. I turn to the man from Sony and ask him what he'd do if Rage ever achieved that ultimate aim of a worldwide socialist revolution. He frowns. I suppose I'd be out of a job. <laughs> Perhaps they'll take me on as a roadie. I mean, it does. The piece is very much addresses yeah. this yes. sort of contradiction in terms the of being, being these, these very extreme radicals uh, calling for worldwide revolution and at the same time being part of, part of the I do, I do corporate love, I do rock love those, machine those Rage those Against the Corporate Rock Machine Rage Against the Corporate Rock Machine yeah but yeah. I mean there's some great tracks from, from that yeah. he's very um, so Zach De La Roca the singer isn't even in, he's at this point said he's not talking to the press anymore so mainly he's talking to Tom Morello the guitar player and he says of Morello, he is seething with disgust, but, but he never raises his voice. It isn't rage, it's the burning, rational disgust of a sincere political professional who knows that sometimes you have to speak quietly and carefully to be heard at all. Yeah, that is interesting. Underlines that it was a very genuine sentiment on the part of the band. They do care about what they're saying, and they're serious about it from a political perspective, which mm. is it's not just a before, it's not just an act to kind no. of try and sell some no. records or whatever. And we occasionally uh, blast killing in the name of the office, don't we? Oh, yeah. And it is still extraordinarily exciting. I mean, Swells says, you know, for all its much vaunted rap rock crossover fizz, the rage noise is, is essentially one huge, storming, hairy-chested, heavy metal riff. But fuck, it works. Oh, it does, yeah, absolutely. I actually just, en passant, wanted to just read a brilliant quote from an interview with The Associates. I absolutely loved The Associates, one of the few groups from the 80s that I genuinely adored. So Dave Rimmer did like a, just a sort of Q&A, essentially, with Billy McKenzie and uh, Alan Rankin of The Associates. The Smash It's 1982, so we're just stepping back a few years. And it's done very much like a kind of old pop press interview would be done on sure. he doesn't he doesn't ask ask what their favourite colours are, but he might as well have done. So one of the questions is this is all part of Smash Hits' sort of um, kind of demystification of right. rock journalism. Right. So one of the questions is, what's the worst holiday you've ever had? <laughs> um, Alan says he hasn't been on holiday for 13 bloody years. But Billy <laughs> Billy says uh, the, the late lamented Billy McKenzie as one of one of one of the great uh, singers of that era, in my opinion. He says, it was berry picking in Blair Gowrie, Scottish, when I was about 14. I was being chased by this big fat girl with green crimpling trousers. She had this passion for frogs and kept them for pets. She kept wanting me to do dirty things to her. So I had to do it in the end, but I was disgusted with myself. <laughs> well, Billy essentially turned out to be not heterosexual so this might have been right quite traumatic for yeah him. That um, sounds traumatic. but he was a great interview billy and those are some of the highlights that we've picked out from all that's going in new for subscribers into the rbp library and that is us done sans mark pringle 
who we've obviously missed terribly, but I hope we've done all right without him. As I say, he'll be back next week. Do check out everything on the site. Do let us know what you think about the podcast. Absolutely. On iTunes we and love, elsewhere. We appreciate feedback that. And we, we love reviews. And we live for feedback. Ratings and all this stuff. Subscribers, etc., etc. Et yeah. So from me and Jasper, it's a hearty farewell. And yes. Jasper's just going to talk us out with the second clip from our right. Jane County so interview. this is the Jane County interview where in the second clip Ira sort of asks how did you pay for all of your various surgeries that you, we heard her talking about earlier and uh, she talks about it again she's funny about this she talks about how she funded it by working in what she calls a house of prostitution thank you so much for listening and I uh, will see you next week bye It must be very expensive to have all that surgery. What did you do for money then? Oh. <laughs> well, do I have to tell you? <laughs> well, I did work for a little while in this uh, this um, house, of prostitu- house of prostitution in Berlin. Uh-huh. Ran by this this madam called Miss Alice, and she's a friend of Romy Hogg. You know, Romy Hogg runs this club in the Berlin Bowery in Iggy. You know, I used to hang out there. Berlin is a very transsexual city. When people go to Berlin, they sort of, it's a very free city, so people really aren't afraid to become involved, you know, with transsexuals and all. And uh, so I worked in her house for a while. I made quite a bit of money because I was quite popular. That was Jane County in conversation with Ira Robbins in 1985, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The host was Barney Hoskins, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. For a list of articles discussed and full show notes, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash podcast. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. In other words, if you ain't got time to take a walk with me on my meat rack, then you can just get the hell out of my breadline.